0: But that's meant to get your attention just a little bit as we start this new series. Thanks to everyone who has participated this morning, Uh, whether you've done so through pre-recorded video or you've been here in person, uh, it's just great to see the church active and contributing to one another, blessing one another through using our gifts, and that's so incredibly important. Keith, fantastic job on the scripture reading. I know there are some tricky names in there. Keith mentioned before, you know, Scott, you gave me a bit of a tricky passage, and I said, Just say it with confidence, because no one else knows how to pronounce those names. So as long as you're confident, now you know the secret to preaching, right? Um, So we are starting a new series, and uh, this series is called A New Normal. I don't know if you're tired of hearing that phrase by now. Uh, There's a lot of phrases going around during this COVID season. Uh, One is unprecedented times. It's not really. There has been times like this before. But the other phrase is A New Normal. And I thought it might be good for us to explore this from a biblical perspective. What does it mean to live in a new normal? Because I think we face this during seasons of our lives. We've got some people here today that are planning a wedding. They're going to be experiencing a new normal, hopefully next year sometime. Other people that have made a house move or in the middle of a house move, they're facing a new normal. People who have lost loved ones in those last month, now they're facing a new normal. And the common thread is we don't normally invite a new normal into our lives. It just kind of comes. And then we have to decide how we're going to react and how we're going to act in the season of a new normal. Well, we're being forced in this time as a culture and as as a society uh, during COVID-19, I think, uh, to either embrace or reject this new normal for this season. So how do we do it well? I think any time we face disruption it's also an opportunity to grow. Anytime we face disruption in our life, it's also an opportunity to grow. But it can go either way. Disruption isn't a guarantee for growth. It depends on how we respond to it, right? Uh, We can either face disruption and change by digging in our heels and refusing to budge. Honestly, that's exhausting. You ever find that exhausting? It's exhausting to fight disruption by just digging in and holding on to what we knew in the past. Or sometimes disruption is so overwhelming, change is so overwhelming, that we become almost paralyzed by it. And that's a dangerous moment for us. And some of us have experienced that, that moment of paralysis where it's just too much. But there's also a possibility that exists with disruption. And that is the possibility to learn and to grow, to improve, to change in ways that we never would have imagined in normal times. And so in order to find out how we thrive in disruption, not just survive, I want to turn our attention to the exiles and the period of exile in the Old Testament. Now, we spent a lot of time in Sunday school talking about the Exodus. People have heard of the Exodus. We heard of characters like Moses and Joshua um, larger-than-life names. We, we hear of the time on Mount Sinai where they get the, the law and then they set up the tabernacle, which eventually becomes the temple, and they claim the land. It's all very exciting. I don't think we spend as much time looking at the exile. The exile is that period of Babylonian captivity. It occurs about 600 years before Jesus, roughly. And it's when King Nebuchadnezzar, comes and eventually destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and takes people captive back to Babylon. And it's very interesting to see this major disruption in the life of the people of Israel and what they do with it. During this major disruption, they lose identity. At least, they lose three pillars of identity. They lose contact with the land... They lose the monarchy because the the king and all the royalty have been taken away or killed. And they lose the temple, so they lose that center of worship. So what are they going to do as they head into a strange land in order to maintain their identity, but also to thrive as people in the new land? And so there's a whole host of people, uh, individuals that are associated with the exile. Um, I'd like to do a pop quiz right now, but I might not be able to hear everyone's voices. Think through in your mind, if you have heard some of the Bible stories, who are some of the characters involved in the time of exile? We're going to look at five of them over the course of this month. Now, some of these characters, they actually never went to Babylon. Some of the characters were born in Babylon. Some of the characters returned from Babylon And some of the characters, like Esther, never did. They never came back. They actually established a community that existed right up to modern day Iraq, a thriving Jewish community that was there up until almost the present day. And they were the descendants of Esther and her people. And so we have different responses, different reactions to this time of exile. I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from these uh, different individuals. Well, today we're looking at Jeremiah. And it's great that uh, uh, Linda read from Lamentations because Lamentations is a work of Jeremiah. Actually, I always have the Bible open to this passage because it falls in the middle. And finally, today, it's at the appropriate passage, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah uh, is an important character. And Jeremiah was uh, not a bullfrog. And I know some of you have thought of that. As I said, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. You might know the song. My wife sings it every time I say that. It's so cute. Okay, Jeremiah was an unlikely prophet to Jerusalem. And here's why. He was too young. Prophets should be old and kind of gnarly, right? Or gnarled, I think is the word. Um, But he was too young. And we find that right at the beginning of Jeremiah, If you're here today and you're thinking, I'm too young for God to use me in any important way, read Jeremiah, read the opening lines. Jeremiah says that exact argument to God. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. I'm not old enough to do this. But that excuse fell on deaf ears when it came to God. The other thing is, he's not from Jerusalem. He's actually from the north. He's kind of from a little tiny town just into the northern kingdom. And so he's not a local. And he's not a city boy. And so all of these reasons were kind of excuses that Jeremiah puts up to God. I'm not suitable for this job. It would be like taking a a kid from Tabor, Alberta, and sending him to be the ambassador for Canada to the United States. It It just doesn't compute in our mind, right? That's Jeremiah. He shouldn't have had this job. He doesn't have any kind of qualification for it, other than the fact that God sent him. Just let that sink in for a moment. As we're thinking about what God calls us to do. The only qualification we need is that we're sent by God, that we're empowered by God, that we're filled by God's spirit. So I don't know if you're a parent today and you're feeling, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. I'm not, I'm not ready to do this anymore. Um, if God has called you to be a parent and has filled you with your spirit, then that's what you need. And we could, we could transport that to all kinds of things in our jobs, in our lives in our communities. If God has called us, he will equip us and send us. That's the authority that we need. That's what Jeremiah went with as he went to Jerusalem. But he had an unusual uh, relationship, especially with the leaders in Jerusalem and with lots of the people. He often got into uh, prophetic arguments with people. The leaders often didn't like what he had to say. In fact, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying Jerusalem, do you know where Jeremiah was? He was in prison. They had actually thrown him into a deep pit, and he managed to get out of the pit, and he had a hearing before the court, and then they decided, you're a traitor, and you're about to defect, we're going to put you in jail. So while Jerusalem is burning down around him, Jeremiah was actually in prison. So that's a little bit about the prophet Jeremiah and where he's coming from. He was in prison during the Babylonian conquest, and he never actually goes to Babylon. He always stays and prophesies from Jerusalem. Well, in the passage that was read to us, uh, Jeremiah writes a letter from God to the exiles to tell them how they can thrive in the exile and not just survive. And it's an incredible letter. I don't know if you you caught the weight of it and the power of it, the importance of it, as uh, Keith read it for us today. What do we discover as we begin to read the letter? If you have your Bibles open and Jeremiah 29, here's what we read right at the beginning. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to their surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile, From Jerusalem to Babylon. And then listen to this. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. Here's what we learn. This is important. Not everybody went into exile. Not everybody was taken. This isn't the exodus. In the exodus, the whole nation was in Egypt together and they were slaves. This is the exile. It's a little different. Nebuchadnezzar actually handpicked the people that he wanted to take back with him. He picked the brightest and the best. He picked people from the nobility. He picked the craftsmen. He picked the artisans. He picked the skilled workers. He picked the people that could make Babylon great again. That was his whole point. His second point is if he took all the brightest and best out of Babylon or out of Jerusalem, it would be very difficult for the city to rebuild. So quite a smart move on Nebuchadnezzar's part. I wonder how that made Jeremiah feel, because he wasn't picked by Nebuchadnezzar to go. He wasn't among the brightest and best or the most useful uh, to be found by Nebuchadnezzar. I remember in grade five, we had to do this uh, lifeboat exercise. It's a terrible exercise. And the lifeboat could only, I think, hold 20 people out of a class of 30. So basically, the class had to decide who they were going to chuck overboard, right? Anybody have to play this game? It's horrible. And so everybody was given a card with an occupation and a name on it and an age. And the teacher gave me this card. On it, it said my name, I think, was Bob. I was 56 years old, and I was a minister. I'm doomed, I knew it right off the bat. There's no way that I'm making it on that lifeboat. (laughs) There's no way that anybody's going to value what I do. (laughs) And here I am, however many years later, not quite that age yet. But uh, a lot of the people were left behind and Jerusalem struggled and Jeremiah stayed with those people who were struggling in famine and desolation. And that's the book of Lamentations. When you read that, that's what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet is dealing with. So, we understand that not everybody was taken, but the brightest and best, those that were most useful to Babylon, were taken. So, what were they supposed to do? Now, remember, they're not slaves. We have to get that out of our minds. It's not Egypt, so they're not slaves. They're not being forced to make bricks without straw. They actually have a lot of latitude, a lot of freedom, a lot of opportunity to develop businesses, to be involved in the government to be involved in the regular life of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to bring these people from different kingdoms in order to assimilate into this one glorious kingdom in Babylon, which at the time was probably the largest city in the world. That was his plan. And so all these people from Jerusalem were brought in. What were they supposed to do? So that's what the letter is about. The letter is giving instructions for the exiles So that they would thrive and not just survive. So that they would maintain their identity, but still move forward. So that they had the ability to mourn the past, but then get on with the future. That's what the letter is all about. So here's four quick things as we work through the passage that they were supposed to do to thrive. First of all, settle down, says Jeremiah, says God through Jeremiah. Look at verses uh, 5 and 6. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Settle down. You're in this for the long haul. That's part of the message. If you're going to be planting a garden, it doesn't produce fruit the very next day, right? He's saying settle into this. You're going to be here a while. So you might as well get on with life. You might as well learn to pay attention to your basic needs. Get yourself a house. Get yourself a garden. Start producing your food. But also pay attention to those relational needs that are so important. Continue to get married. Continue to have children. Continue to have your children's children. Continue to develop this community. Settle down. Make this your home. What a a message. I don't know if you read in the Psalms, uh, we read, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. That's not just a Boney M song, right? Uh, But by the rivers of Babylon, that's what the temptation was, just to sit down and weep, just to be lost in our sorrow for what we've lost and left behind. But here, Jeremiah says, no, settle down, settle into this, build houses, take care of your needs, grow your families. And guess what? They did. They actually did. Historical documents, archaeological documents, show us that the population of the Jews actually increased as a percentage of the overall population exponentially over the years until there was a thriving Jewish community that existed, like I said, right up until modern times. What an incredible thing to do, settle down in this foreign land. Okay, the second thing they're supposed to do. Seek Peace. Look at verse 7. It says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, wait a minute. Isn't this the enemy? Right? Isn't Babylon the enemy? Isn't Nebuchadnezzar this evil, wicked king that has destroyed our city and our temple and has brought us? And now you want us to do what? To seek his prosperity? And that's exactly what God tells them to do through Jeremiah. So this isn't the Exodus, where as they came into the land, they did not seek the prosperity of the people in the land they came to. But now it's different. Now God says, bless the people that you're living among. Seek their well-being. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have brought you. Because if it succeeds, you'll succeed. Your prosperity, your fortunes, are now tied to the fortunes of this city. Make it better. Make it better. Kind of bloom where you're planted at this time. I love the fact that our missions committee, once again, this month, are engaging us in simple tasks that make the lives of others better. And even that simple task, we might not think is going to make too much of a difference, but it does. And in these simple acts of kindness, we can make the lives of others better better. That's what we're called to do. We're called to make this place better. We're called to bless and pray for the city of Calgary because that's what God would have us to do even during this time. And guess what? They did. They did exactly that. In fact, the Jewish community was so well-respected in Babylon during a certain period of time that there were people, native-born in Babylon, who wanted to join the community. And now the community, the Jewish community had a problem. How do we create a mechanism for people to convert and become part of the children of Israel? And they had to come up with a mechanism for it because people saw the attractiveness of this community who are focused on blessing and prospering the city in which they found themselves. So settle down and seek peace. And here's the third thing. Listen up. That's the third thing they were called to do. Look at verses 8 and 9 as we go through this together. Yes, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says Do not let the prophets deceive you. Do not listen to dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Don't listen to the fake news, don't listen to the false prophets. Uh, what were these false prophets doing? Well, if you go back into chapter 28, you'll come across a, a false prophet by the name of Hananiah. And Hananiah was basically saying this to the people in exile. Don't worry. Relax. This is going to last for a couple of years, and then you'll all be back to normal. Don't listen to them, says, says Jeremiah. You're going to be here for 70 years. It's a lifetime and a half for some of you. Some of you will never see the return. Some of you will stay there forever. So settle in, seek peace, but listen up. Pay attention to what God is saying at this time in this place and don't listen to the false prophets. It's interesting because they did exactly that. In fact, it was during the exile period that the whole synagogue system began to form. So before the exile... They had the temple for worship, and the priests were really in, tr- in charge of the temple worship. But now the temple's gone, so what do they do? Well, they gather, actually, around the Torah. They gather around the Word of God. That's where their identity comes from. They gather on the Sabbath, and let, let me see if this sounds familiar. They gather, gather on the Sabbath, they gather around the Word, they sing some songs together, and then they support one another in community. Hmm. I wonder where we've seen that before. In fact, this period of exile is so important to the life of Judaism and also our practice of Christian worship. We have actually learned a lot of our habits, believe it or not, of Christian worship from the period of exile and from that whole system of synagogue, which gathers around the word and finds its identity in it. That's what happens. And so they do. They listen up to what God is saying. Okay, the fourth thing. So we've got settle down, seek peace, listen up. And the fourth thing is this. Look ahead. Don't forget to look ahead. And these are the verses that are probably the best known verses in Jeremiah. And it says this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Have you heard that verse before, some of you? What an amazing promise. Before we apply it to ourselves, we have to let it rest with the exiles because that's where it first belongs. And God, through Jeremiah, is saying, Don't despair. Yes, settle down and seek peace and listen up, but always look ahead to the promise. Always look ahead to the hope for the future. That I want to instill in you. That you are not forgotten. God has not forgotten you. In fact, God has a plan. Part of this plan is actually the exile. But part of it is to bring you back as well. And they did. They were brought back. God did deliver on his promise. But not everybody came back. And those who came back were never, ever the same that's an important part of this whole story as well so how do we apply this to our lives today well before we get down to individual application i want to look at just the big theological brush that the new testament uses when talking about the followers of jesus especially in the epistles like peter peter uses a word for you and me he calls us exiles he calls us resident aliens not aliens like flying saucer aliens, but you know, we are here, but we don't belong here permanently. That's an important thing for us to get, that we as a people and as followers of Jesus, we're meant to inhabit a place, but still remember that we are actually just passing through. That there is something on the other side of the grave. There is something that is eternal that we are working toward. And so as Christians, we have to be careful not to become too possessive of our earthly citizenship. We have to be careful that we don't hold on to that too tightly. Because, as the New Testament says, our citizenship is in heaven. We need to keep future-oriented as we think through these times. That might actually help us to get along with all kinds of people. When we realize that we don't have to defend our citizen as being better or great, citizenship as better or greater than someone else, because we realize that in Christ, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. That's our allegiance. That's where we're heading. That's what we have to hold on to. But while we're here, we need to do as the exiles did. We need to settle down. We need to pay attention to life-giving relationships. We need to plan for our future. We need to uh, do the things that we need to do to get on with our lives. Uh, We need to seek peace. We need to bless this city and bless our neighbors. We need to listen up. We need to pay attention to what God is saying to us in this time. But always, always, we need to look ahead at the plans God has for us. Some of you know that I used to ride a motorcycle a lot. Not here in Calgary, but when I lived down in Vancouver, I would ride the bike all year round. And Christine was my co-rider with me. She wasn't just a passenger. and We had lots of great adventures together. One of the things I learned early on with a motorbike is that you steer it very differently from a car. Now, that sounds obvious when I say it out loud right now. But but it's an important fact. You know, when you're doing low speed on a motorcycle, if you've ever ridden one, or a pedal bike, you know, you turn your handlebars to the direction you want to go. But when you get up to speed on a motorcycle, 80, 90, 100 kilometers an hour, you cannot just simply turn your bars in order to change directions, right? You need to lean the bike a little bit. You need to set the bike off course just enough so that it makes its turn. Uh, In motorcycling, it's called counter-steering. Sometimes you put just enough input into the opposite direction in order to cause the bike to fall a little bit. And when you do that, you disrupt the forward momentum of the motorcycle so that you can change direction. Disruption in our lives sometimes, I think, is meant to make us change course, change direction. Sometimes God just sets us off balance enough that we have to change course or change direction disruption can actually be a tool of God to bring about healthy change. It's interesting as we read this passage in verse 1, we see it's a, it says that um, it mentions the people that Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. That Nebuchadnezzar did this. But when we get down to verse 4, it changes its tone. It says, God says to all those I carried into exile, See the difference? Could it be, could it be that God not only uses disruption in our life, but sometimes he leads us into times of disruption so that we can learn, so that we can change, so that we can depend on him again? Well, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet for a reason. And when you read Lamentations, you realize that he wept. He mourned the loss of Jerusalem. He mourned the loss of the temple, even though he knew it was coming he still wept. And weeping and mourning is a totally appropriate response to loss. And I know some of us, as we go through this journey of COVID-19, there's a lot of things that we're missing right now. And it's totally appropriate to feel a sense of loss, of grief, of mourning for those times. But also Jeremiah had a word of hope. He said, make sure that you still move forward, that you settle down, that you seek peace, that you listen up, and that you look toward the future, and maybe learn from that today. Well, what is God calling us to learn and do during this season of disruption in our lives and in our society? I wonder if God wrote a letter to us today, what would he say so that we could thrive and not just survive during this season? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for an opportunity to gather around your word. Thank you for uh, the insight it gives and the power that comes from your spirit. Father, help us to listen carefully to what you have to say to us in this time, in this place. And Father, give us the strength to move forward, not only to take care of our own needs, but to bless those around us, that this city might know that your church is active and engaged and ready to serve in your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.